Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Sesame Street is an icon around the world. The magical television show transports kids to a comforting place, all while learning their ABCs and 123s. Now the groundbreaking educational programs working to help refugee children and their families who've experienced trauma in conflict zones. Coming up, we speak to the International Rescue Committee about its $100 million partnership with Sesame Street. The award from the MacArthur Foundation will help the groups reach displaced children from Syria We'll find out how they plan on doing that. That's later. Now, when civil war breaks out in a place like Syria, who are the people left behind? Sure, the people who don't have the money to leave, but also the helpers. They include ordinary residents and medical professionals who risk their lives despite the dangers and stress of war. In times of crisis, health care is needed more than ever before. Today, where we live, we'll hear from doctors in the U.S. who are working to help medical students in Syria. The training program is a collaboration between faculty and students at Yale University and the State University of New York, Albany. First, when's the last time you've heard news about Syria? To get an idea of what it's like for Syrians today in 2018, as the country moves towards seven years now in a deadly civil war, joining me by phone is Dr. Lena Murad. She's a practicing, practicing nephrologist in the D.C. area, a former board member of the Syrian American Medical Society. She also is an active participant in that group's missions. Dr. Murad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, many listeners here in the U.S. Uh, may not have heard much about Syria recently. Uh, it's going on seven years uh, in March that that civil war began there. Um, can you describe what's going on there in recent days? Yeah. Uh, so what's going on you know, in Syria is uh, unlike any conventional wars where medical facilities are destroyed you know, as a collateral damage. In the Syrian war, it's, the medical, it's a Syrian regime a dictatorian uh, regime that is attacking healthcare facility deliberately, systematically, in an effort to displace civilians, to move out in areas that are forcing any rebellion against, you know, the regime, and uh, in this way basically affecting casualties on civilians who deny the access to any healthcare, um, basic human rights, which is access, you know, to healthcare, maternity, children's vaccination, you know, and so on. People have been displaced, you know, from this area, and that's why you see the mass of refugees, 11 million, has been displaced just in a way to get, you know, the basic human rights. This is what people, you know, are, are uh, forgetting, you know, about, you know, the Syrian war, and they think that just because we defeated the Islamic State that everything is over. Whereas, you know, in reality, the humanitarian need has increased from 10 million last year to almost 13 million, you know, this year. Uh, Dr. Murad, uh, you mentioned uh, the civil war. When we think about that, we think of two clear sides. Uh, the situation in Syria is very complicated. There's many different uh, groups that are all fighting each other. Can you lay it out for us? That is, that is true. I mean, you know, there's many group fighting, and it is unfortunately had become a politicized war with many uh, major power involved in that area. The thing, you know, that we concentrate on as physicians is the brunt that all the civilians uh, are taking, you know, the casualty. 
um, you know, from, from group fighting, you know, the civilians are the ones you know, who have been displaced and been denied the health care that they need. You are a member or a former board member of the Syrian American Medical Society. Um, you're a Syrian yourself. Tell me uh, when you came to this country, how did you get involved in this group? Uh, so basically, we started, you know, Syrian Medical Society, with the abbreviation is called SAMS. We started as any other medical professional society, like, you know, a few members, a very small foundation. But since the war escalated in Syria, we found ourselves obligated to deliver humanitarian relief. And since 2012, we became one of the major medical providers of healthcare inside Syria. So we're a network of almost 1,000 physicians. We supported 3 million patients every year, uh, 138 medical facilities, 2,000 Syrian staff of healthcare workers, you know, who are delivering the healthcare. And we're doing everything to help them rebuild the destroyed healthcare system in order to continue mm. the medical care in South Syria. How do you help them when the civil war has been raging on, uh, when the uh, Assad regime, uh, you know, is blocking uh, certain aid coming into the country? How do you help them? So we have many things, you know, going on. We have a lot of courageous doctors that are going, you know, inside Syria. Uh, there's a hundred, you know, that keep going inside Syria to help and train. We do a lot of training missions to neighboring countries um, in advanced cardiac like support, in, in trauma surgery, and so on. And then, you know, we have me- medical missions that go on to neighboring countries, and um, we do healthcare, including cardiac cath, uh, dialysis, you know, and so on, to all the refugees, you know, around, you know, the area. And now we're expanding even to the refugees in Greece and, and beyond. So we work on multiple levels, and, you know, we work with the social media uh, to help, you know, the, the healthcare worker support them and um, any health, any questions that they have, you know, we can support them by phone. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we know that millions have been displaced, uh, hundreds of thousands of Syrians killed. Who are the people that are left uh, that are trying to provide health care? So the people, you know, are really a a bunch, you know, of courageous people. The latest statistic in 2017 showed that there's only one general practitioner for every 50,000 civilian left and one specialist for every 200,000. So you can imagine, you know, it's a handful of doctors trying to provide health care to all the civilians left. And that's why we've seen increased number of casualties among normal death, you know, let's say heart disease and diabetes and uh, uh, kids' starvation and lack of vaccination. So the war, you know, has taken a big brunt, you know, on civilians, not only from the, the destruction in the war itself, but from the lack of medical services. So we at SAMS are pro- committed to providing any help you know, we can to the few healthcare workers that are left supporting them by salaries, sending medical supplies, training missions, and uh, being available for them every, every moment of the day with anything, you know, the logistical support that they need. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Dr. Lena Murad, practicing nephrologist in the D.C. area. She's a former board member of the Syrian American Medical Society, an active participant in the missions of that group uh, as they try to uh, help with humanitarian aid, also training um, of those that are still in Syria that to provide health care. We're going to be talking about a collaboration uh, by Yale University and the University uh, SUNY Albany in just a few minutes. Uh, but Dr. Murad, you mentioned that hospitals are still being attacked in Syria uh, under the Geneva Convention. That's a war crime. Uh, what has been the response from the international community? Yeah, unfortunately, there have been very little response from the international community. There have been a Security Council resolution, 2086, in May 2016, that condemned you know, those attacks and uh, declared them you know, as war crimes. There have been many recommendations 
uh, but nothing has been in, in basically implemented on the ground because the major forces uh, are the ones involved in the war in Syria, and they're blocking any UN security resolution. So this is a war crime that's been you know, going on with impunity, and, and unfortunately it's setting the precedent for future crises for other dictatorships you know, to inflict you know, on civilians. Uh, with hospitals being bombed, are there uh, clinics or uh, other areas of care that have to really go underground so that they cannot be found? Absolutely. You know, I mean, this, this you know, the war you know, has gone, you know, through the seven years, you know, into different crises. So we tried, you know, to fortify the hospitals, you know, at one stage, that we tried to help people build in caves, you know, even underground. And the major attack, you know, from the Syrian regime were barrel bombs in the beginning, but then since the involvement in Russia with more targeted weapons and the use, you know, of the chlorine and other chemical attacks had even targeted, you know, those underground hospitals and gassed people, you know, who are working on, in caves, you know, under hospitals. So, you know, unfortunately, every time, you know, we, we, we try to help, you know, healthcare workers, you know, to protect them. There have been more attacks, you know, and more targeted attacks. And what, what that made Syria the most dangerous place for healthcare workers to practice in 2016 uh, 16 and 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think of healthcare professionals in this country, uh, there are people with specific training and degrees. Um, with so many people that have left, Dr. Murad, uh, the people that are trying to help, what are their backgrounds, and how difficult is it for them to to take care of of uh, these Syrians who are sick and wounded? It, it, you know, it's actually, you know, this is very difficult because you know, even back in in the good days, you know, in Syria, we did not have very strong what we call paraprofessionals, which is nurses and nurse practitioners and, and technicians you know, like we have in the U.S. But now, you know, we're relying on those people to, de- to basically do the, the job, you know, of doctors. You know, we're training mostly technicians and nurses to do the work, you know, of physicians because there are very few physicians left. Uh, for example, in Aleppo, under the siege, there was only one OBGYN doctor who was delivering all the C-section, all deliveries, you know, in that area. So she had to train, um, you know, midwives, you know, basically on on the job training to take care of those people. So this is where we concentrate on our training, besides trying to build a new uh, healthcare force by training medical students. And this is what's been also very, very difficult under the circumstances, Mm. as you can imagine. Uh, I mentioned that you're from uh, Syria originally, Dr. Murad. Um, personally, uh, when you see this civil war going on for so long, when you see uh, the devastation and the suffering, how has it impacted you? Of course, you know, it's been extremely hard, you know, not only as, uh, you know, as a Syrian, um, a, a Syrian in origin, but any physician, you know, to see all this mass casualties, you know, to see the pictures, you know, of the kids, you know, that, that died unnecessarily, of stars people, of, uh, um, you know, the, the, the massive, you know, destruction and the, the, the major injuries, you know, that you've seen that we've never, ever seen, you know, before, that by itself, you know, is heartbreaking. And to see civilians just fleeing, you know, destruction every single day and not being having access to, to the simple health care that, you know, we take for granted here in the U.S. has been extremely heartbreaking. Of course, you know, like everybody else, you know, we have our moment ups and very moments down, but, you know, when you talk to people inside Syria and seeing their resilience, you can't help but, you know, get yourself together and, and keep going to try to help them. I wanted to bring into our conversation now Dr. Hani Mawafi, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale Medical School, also Chief of the Section of Global Health and International Emergency Medicine. Dr. Mawafi, welcome to the show. 
Uh, thank you for having me. I understand you're an ER doctor with a degree in public health, a study of a humanitarian crisis as well. When you hear about what's happening in Syria, uh, similarities uh, with other conflicts that we've seen in recent years, and um, the challenges, the unique issues that are going on there. Sure. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, attacks on healthcare uh, are not limited to uh, the war in Syria. It's been a phenomenon that, uh, for the last few decades, we've seen uh, increases in the number of health workers uh, uh, killed uh, initially through uh, lack of protection, uh, and now, as Dr. Murad said, uh, through being directly targeted by uh, the warring parties. Uh, I think it's important to understand the scope of what's happening in Syria. So uh, the monitoring uh, uh, of, of violence uh, in healthcare working group that just uh, uh, started recently uh, is an effort to document uh, these attacks on healthcare workers. And there's been just under a thousand uh, uh, attacks on healthcare workers in, uh, 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 since the group started, over half of which uh, happened in Syria itself. So uh, the Syrian war is representing 50% of all the attacks on doctors and healthcare facilities and nurses and other healthcare workers uh, uh, in war around the world. Now, I mentioned uh, that you and your colleagues at Yale have collaborated with SUNY Albany. We're going to hear from a couple of gentlemen uh, from SUNY Albany in just a little bit. But you've created a program to try to train medical students and others that are that are still in Syria uh, to train them in, in uh, medical procedures and in, in the study of medicine. How do you do that? Uh, well, uh, it's, it's not easy. Uh, what, what I would say, though, uh, just to... Uh, put a fine point on it. Uh, I, I don't want to say that we created uh, the program because uh, the real heroes uh, on the ground are the doctors and the nurses that have been there working uh, kind of tirelessly under under constant threat. And uh, this is uh, a problem that came up out of other work. Essentially, uh, you know, my, uh, despite being an educator, most of what I was focusing on uh, initially uh, through uh, working with uh, SAMS and the Union of uh, Medical Care and Relief Organizations, an organization called OSM, U-O-S-S-M, uh, which is another Syrian expatriate organization, was uh, analyzing uh, the data coming from the health facilities, trying to help them understand what types of cases were being uh, seen in the clinics, uh, what the needs were to help them plan for resource allocation and to document uh, what was happening in the war. And Really, this issue of education came up out of side discussions where uh, in talking to doctors uh, on the ground and meeting them in uh, meetings in Turkey, they would say that the facilities uh, are not just losing uh, physicians and nurses from uh, attacks. Uh, they're losing because uh, some of the young physicians uh, lose hope and then uh, leave the country. So, I mean, it's estimated that, you know, Syria before the war had roughly 30,000 physicians, and there are estimates that say half of those physicians have left. Uh, you know, uh, so of those 15,000 that left, 1,500 of them are practicing in Germany, right? So, I mean, I think it's important for people to understand that the people that make the very expensive and, uh, and uh, 
difficult journey uh, across land to get to Europe. These are the people with means. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, physicians and their families uh, typically have uh, more resources and are able to make these trips. Uh, but that leaves a critical shortage of, of healthcare workers inside, uh, inside the country. And the ones that are willing to stay uh, really needed support. So we began to talk to them to see what, in what ways could we best support. And there came, they came up with the idea of, well, we have hundreds of students that graduate in each area around Syria uh, that would like to stay. They want to make their life in the country. They want to help their fellow citizens. They want to become physicians and nurses. Uh, how can we help to support them? And we went back and were ruminating. And the next time I contacted them, they said, well, we've already started the, the uh, clandestine training. We've got the university uh, essentially started and we've got the first class accepted. So that really jump-started our efforts to figure out how to support them uh, remotely. And we're going to get into uh, some of the tools that uh, they're using uh, to, to do this uh, training remotely. Again, on the phone with me, Dr. Hani Mawafi, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale Medical School. Um, Dr. Lena Morad, again, you're a former board member of the Syrian American Medical Society. Uh, when you hear about these collaborations that are growing uh, between U.S. doctors, U.S. medical students to help in Syria, is there momentum behind this? There is a big momentum, and we're very grateful to our colleagues, you know, all over the U.S. Uh, they've been approaching us, you know, actually, because they, they hear about what's going on. And they've been helping in, in many, many ways. Uh, their physicians all over the U.S. that, that are giving, uh, like, you know, ER courses, you know, online. We're relying a lot on the social media and um, on the technology to deliver lots of courses, uh, training missions. And um, uh, the latest things that Dr. Dr. Muafi and physician from Albany are doing, they're donating applications, you know, like online applications that the student in Syria can use, basically, to continue their medical education. And this is, you know, one last point, you know, I'd like you know, to call for all um, American organizations, like such big organizations like, you know, Google and, and uh, Amazon, you know, hopefully they can hear this and they can donate tablets um, where application can be downloaded. I'm sure there are lots of medical schools, Dr. Moffi can elaborate on this, you know, that are willing to donate medical applications. So if we have the tablets, we have medical applications, we can basically translate them to, to Arabic, you know, or add, uh, um, you know, some Arabic comment, you know, on this and deliver uh, a better education to, to uh, medical students in Syria and hopefully build the next generation of physicians who can replete the shortage, you know, that we have. Uh, this is where we live today. We're talking about the health care crisis in Syria because of the long uh, civil war there. Uh, more than half of medical professionals that have fled the country. Um, and we're talking about some of the initiatives here in the United States as to pair up with Syrians who are still there, who are willing to be there under the the terrible circumstances of that civil war uh, to help uh, those that need care. I want to take a a quick call before we head to break. Matthew's calling from Norwich. Matthew, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi. um, I work in a community health setting as a mental health counselor, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, what, if any, kind of mental health care is still available in Syria or um, in the Middle East in general with a lot of the conflicts going on there? A good question, Matthew. Uh, I'll let uh, uh, Dr. Mawafi, can you take that? He had a question about uh, what kind of of mental health care uh, is in Syria at this time. Sure. So uh, 
mental health was an under-addressed uh, area, I think, uh, in Syria and throughout the Middle East. But uh, thankfully, uh, there has been an increase in the amount of services available uh, specifically to people coming out of Syria uh, in the, uh, that are uh, refugees in the surrounding countries. Now, within Syria, uh, there are still some mental health workers, uh, not many psychiatrists and psychologists, but some uh, trained mental health workers uh, that are working in collaboration with uh, professionals outside, both in the region and through organizations like SAMS and OSM, to provide uh, uh, largely group counseling uh, uh, and then uh, to have some uh, monitoring of patients with known psychiatric conditions to make sure that they're um, uh, able to uh, maintain their medication regimens and stay uh, under control. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Dr. Lena Murad, a practicing nephrologist in the D.C. area. Uh, she participates in missions with the Syrian American Medical Society, also a former board member. Dr. Murad, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, we've been talking about the ongoing civil war in Syria. It has many consequences, including the destruction of a health care system without new doctors and nurses to take the place of those who've left. Today, we're going to learn more about a training program uh, led by faculty and students at Yale and also the University at Albany. Uh, they're trying to train medical students and others uh, to do these very necessary uh, procedures, uh, the health care of people wounded and sick in Syria. Staying with us is Dr. Hani Mawafi, Associate Professor of Emergency medicine at Yale Medical School. And after the break, we talked to two doctors who know what it's like to be displaced. Now, what are the challenges here in the U.S. and abroad to help those in Syria? We'll find out more and we'll take your questions too. 860-275-7266. And find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Attention on Syria is not very much these days. You can't find it very much in the U.S. media. It doesn't mean the conflict is over. Millions of Syrians have been displaced. Hundreds of thousands have died. Coming up, we'll hear about the impacts on refugee children and a unique collaboration to reach them and their families. It's involving Sesame Street. That's just ahead. First, we've been talking about a training program by the School of Medicine at Yale University and the Global Institute for Health and Human Rights at the University of Albany. On the phone with me, Dr. Hani Mawafi, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale Medical School, also Chief of the Section of Global Health and International Emergency Medicine. Uh, we've been hearing about some of the difficulties uh, trying to reach people um, who are involved in healthcare in Syria, Dr. Mawafi. I understand that the, the medical students and others that uh, you're uh, helping through this collaboration, they call themselves Free Aleppo University. Now, how exactly did you connect with them? Uh, so again, as I said, uh, we were uh, working with uh, some physicians uh, inside Syria uh, to uh, help support their delivery of health care uh, uh, and analyze the, the cases that they were seeing. And these same physicians ultimately, meant, some of whom had been faculty members at Aleppo University uh, prior to the war, uh, as, uh, as you probably already know, once the war started, uh, many people who provided any type of uh, health care to protesters or people accused of being protesters were then kind of uh, separated from their jobs, were unable to continue their training. Uh, and But many of these people uh, 
continued uh, to provide assistance and then wanted to continue in their initial mission of training other physicians. Uh, so they started this, what they called Aleppo University uh, as well, but we, we convinced them that that was too confusing uh, to have two institutions in, uh, in the same place called Aleppo University. So they decided to call it Free Aleppo University, mm-hmm. which essentially was uh, clandestine training of uh in, in, the people we were supporting were the healthcare workers, but they actually uh, are, are teaching in many fields. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm getting at in the question about how you're connecting with them is when we hear about the devastating civil war, we wonder about the infrastructure, how easy it is to make a phone call, how easy it is to use a social media app. What are the tools that you're using? Gotcha. So uh, you, you cannot really make a phone call, but uh, thankfully, uh, uh, one of the things that happened early on in the war was uh, a real focus on communications. So initially, uh, health facilities were using satellite uh, internet connections, which are very expensive, uh, but uh, but ultimately were a lifeline for many of these facilities. And while some have continued to rely on satellite internet connections, others uh, now have access to uh, 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 fiber uh, or, or uh, DSL internet connections, uh, specifically in areas that are further away from the fighting. Uh, and then through that, we're able to use uh, Skype, Zoom, uh, all of these uh, conferencing apps, WhatsApp, uh, Twitter, uh, to uh, maintain communications with students and faculty. I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Dr. Kamiar Alai and Dr. Arash Alai. They're brothers. Uh, they're both uh, based in Albany. Dr. Uh, Kamiar, Kamiar, sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, Kamiar Alai, yes, Associate correct. Dean for Global and Interdisciplinary Research, uh, Director of the Global Institute for Health and Human Rights, um, and also a professor at the Rockefeller School of Public Affairs and Policy at University of Albany. Uh, you and your brother Arash are joining us from the studios of Northeast Public Radio. So first, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us. Um, I'm going to start with Arash Alai. Um, uh, and I hope you don't mind if I use your first name so that our listeners can uh, tell which Alai, uh, Dr. Alai we're speaking with. Uh, but Arash, uh, how did you hear about, um, how did you pair up with uh, Yale in helping uh, train these medical students uh, from these remotely by using these social media apps that we heard Dr. Uh, Mawafi mentioning? So I wanted to go back to uh, give you and your audience idea how we involved in this project. So Kamiar and I originally from Kermanshah city, which is part with western part of Iran, and we grew up in eighties when it was war between Iraq and Iran. We have been several times internally displaced. We studied intent. We studied in numbers of villages and city. And because of that, when we saw numbers of students in Syria have been displaced internally and refugee in Turkey, that was our passion to help them. Because of that, we started to go to Turkey several times and talk to Turkish uh, higher education council and numbers of university to find opportunity to help those numbers of students we saw in mass media. 
Then later we shared this idea with Dr. Moafi and Dr. Khoshnut, and they informed us they are going to have seminar and they wanted to invite numbers of doctors who are working inside of Syria. That was great opportunity for us to be in touch with Yale colleagues and with Syrian doctors who wanted to help numbers of students to continue their education. Mm. You mentioned you understand what it's like to be displaced. Um, I'll, I'll ask your brother, uh, Kamiar, you were also arrested in Iran for doing public health programming. Yes. Uh, as you may know, before I was arrested, my brother and I, they, we lived in Iran, and there was eight years war between Iran and Iraq. And we were, you know, in the city, in the border, which was affected by the war. And we, we went through all of those situations of how it's difficult that you have to be relocated daily basis, but you wanted to continue your education. And because of your experience, you see how doctors and other medical professionals professionals rather, are caught in the crosshairs when conflict happens, where you're hearing that they're being targeted, where hospitals are being bombed. Um, we heard Dr. Mawafi say earlier that um, the students who are there who are still being trained, um, it's important for them to still have hope. How do you instill hope in these, in these people you're trying to help? This is, you know, very important point because, you know, when we have been in touch with a student, in the beginning we had, you know, we didn't have any idea how we wanted to deliver this course when they are in that situation. Every day, you know, challenge to survive. Now we wanted to talk to continue higher education for them, to deliver high a high-level course, academic course. But when we had opportunity to be in touch with them through those platforms that Dr. Moafi said, we found they have passion. 51% of our students are girls. They wanted to be doctor to provide service and they don't want it to leave their country. So that was huge passion from them to give us energy to develop this program. Well, when we think about medical school, I mean, all of our guests would know better than me, uh, but think about uh, the certain courses you would take. Or uh, I'm just wondering how, when you're talking about using uh, apps and Skyping, like how you can uh, get certain information across uh, when maybe they don't have the, sort, the certain textbooks in front of them, so to speak. I'll ask uh, 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 Arash to answer that. So, as you may know, these students, they have the unique situation. For example, the first uh, challenge is safety because, and security. They have to be relocated daily basis. So there's no uh, uh, permanent uh, uh, place that they can continue to study. Some of them, they have to study in the basement. Others, they may be finding a safe restaurant to continue the education. So that was the first challenge that we had to uh, deliver courses online. Mm -hmm. But the second challenge was most of them, it was the first time that they had any kind of online education. So we wanted to have some kind of preparation for them. The other okay. challenge was language barriers mm -hmm. because most of them they speak Arabic but not English. So we had to identify, identify and recruit bilingual co-instructors that they could translate all of those courses from English to Arabic. 
the other challenge was that the students they used to have interaction with their professors so we had to add synchronized component to asynchronized you know education so we added live sessions the other challenge was that most of them they didn't have laptop or a computer so we work with department of computer science to develop an application that they could use with the smartphone because fortunately more than 90% of them they had a smartphone different kind of a smartphone so they were able to use those kind of application the other challenge was access to internet because they had very limited time that they could access to internet through the satellites from the border countries so we developed like a offline platform that they could use during the time that they don't have access to internet so step by step we learn and we uh, uh, improve the quality of services the other challenge was that initially we recruited a doctor who was a uh, physician from Iraq and he he was fluent in Arabic but we didn't know that Syria is the only Arabic speaking country that they have their own medical terminology in their own language which means they couldn't communicate with other doctors with respect to medical terminology so we had to identify Syrian doctors to deliver some of those courses and that was a motivation for us to deliver online intensive language program for students so that was a good opportunity for students to improve the English language and also medical terminology for them so in the future they can use any kind of medical uh, textbooks without any problem so it was a progressive effort that over the time we learn we share with them we had a continue continuous uh, evaluation we received feedbacks from them and we were very impressed how much those students are dedicated the other interesting thing we found that traditionally some of those students they were separated by gender so some of them they express that they appreciate this online platform because that gives them an opportunity that they can interact with the other gender so girls can understand how boys are thinking so it was a kind of friendly environment among those students can you describe uh, the situation that that your students uh, with uh, uh, this program are under today in, in 2018? As we mentioned earlier in the show, there's not a lot of attention on what's happening in Syria. Uh, a lot of the discussion, especially in this country, is looking at the refugee uh, crisis and who to uh, permit to come into uh, this country. Uh, Europe is dealing with uh, um, so many of the displaced that are looking for a new home. But each day... Um, you know, another day moves forward in Syria, and these are students that are trying to help. Um, what is it like for them? Uh, what 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 do they have at their fingertips uh, to do this work? Uh, come here. So uh, they are very dedicated students. The average age is between eighteen to twenty-five. They were very gifted students among uh, several of their fellow classmates and they were very committed to stay in Syria because as you know a significant proportion of doctors or medical professionals they decided to leave the country which is reasonable but these are those who wanted to stay to help their you know fellow citizens and as you know a lot of people they get injured daily basis so these students they wanted to be healthcare providers in the future to help those people so they were very passionate and motivated you know to learn and to apply some of things that they learn from those online classes and also 
as a peer educators and peer counselor to help the younger siblings or family members how they can apply to this kind of you know online education and how they can coach them during the academic uh, environment in addition to Kamir's point i want if it's possible i wanted to add some you know uh, information share with some information and activity we have you know because we found those students they have been isolated in their country and now they, we wanted to have them to be in touch with the other students outside of Syria because of that we send uh, announcement to our student uh, not only in Albany area in in United States now we have numbers of volunteer students and we connected them to those students in Syria this connection as Kamiar mentioned we have in addition to that intensive English language program they learn from each other inside of Syria and outside of Syria Syrian student American student and international student they share their experience they share their culture and they improve their each knowledge in addition to that we change some of the course to be more practical for example for mental health you ask question what is the facility for mental health care inside of Syria there is lack of you know uh, professionals inside of Syria we are going to change our courses to be more practical numbers of course will be psychology course uh, for those students, how they can protect themselves and how they can be service provider as a psycho because they don't have psychologists as a health care worker in their family and in their community. These are type of you know interaction between Syrian student and outside. You're hearing from Dr. Arash Alai, independent expert on HIV AIDS and higher education based in Albany, and his brother, Dr. Kamir Ali, associate Ali, 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 Alai. I'm so sorry, I'm, yes. I'm having trouble saying your name today. <laughs> and this is a, someone with a name like Nalpathangel, <laughs> um, associate dean for global and interdisciplinary research, director of the Global Institute for Health and Human Rights, and public service professor at Rockefeller School of Public Affairs and Policy at University of Albany. Uh, these men, along with Dr. Hani Mawafi uh, from Yale, who's on the phone with us, are all working on a, a remote uh, program to help train medical students in Syria. I wanted to go back to Dr. To Dr. Hani Mawafi at Yale. Um, how do you measure success of this program when we hear about all of the challenges? And what are your long-term hopes in this collaboration, Dr. Mawafi? Dr. Mawafi, are you there? Oh, I don't think I hear him anymore. So I'll throw that question to the brothers, uh, Dr. Kamiar and Dr. Arash Alahi. How do you measure success when you think about these challenges? So we, we have, you know, each three months evaluation. And we share this evaluation with numbers of faculty members at Yale, at Harvard, and South Carolina to see that and, you know, individual expert and help us. Because, you know, when we wanted to start this program, we couldn't find any previous experience to deliver higher education courses for internally displaced medical students. Because of that, we wanted to ask 
volunteers ask other universities to come to help us because we have, as I mentioned, each three months one evaluation. We have survey, we have, you know, a live discussion with our target group to know how we can solve barriers and how we can improve the quality of program in the future because we hope to learn from this pilot and scale it up for worldwide there is no you know debate to say you know it's only in Syria we can see this challenge there is numbers of challenge and war in and conflict in other parts of the world we need to come with intern with big platform and have available program for those students who wanted to continue their education Thank you so much, Dr. Kamir Alahi and Dr. Arash Alahi, uh, both uh, men working, again, to uh, help train medical students remotely, uh, the ones that are in Syria uh, helping uh, the sick and wounded there. Also, thanks to Dr. Hani Mawafi, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale Medical School. Uh, we hope to get an update from, uh, from you in the near future. Thanks again for joining us today from the studios of WAMC in Albany. This is Thank where we you. live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, the impact of trauma on children can follow them throughout their lives. Now a unique collaboration between Sesame Street and the International Rescue Committee uh, aims to help children and their families who live in refugee camps. More after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The refugee crisis caused by the civil war in Syria has many consequences, including the toxic stress it's caused more than 12 million children who've been displaced. Late last month, the MacArthur Foundation awarded a $100 million grant to a partnership between Sesame Street and the International Rescue Committee. Their aim is to help these refugee children and their families. Uh, one of the people behind the idea is a Connecticut resident who works for the International Rescue Committee based in New York City. Joining us by phone is Katie Murphy, Senior Technical Advisor for Early Childhood Development at the IRC. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's great to be on. First, uh, congratulations on this grant. $100 million is a dream come true for many nonprofits. It really is. No, it's it's amazing. We're still really on cloud nine. Uh, when we talk about uh, the refugee crisis, we think about uh, the basic necessities. Uh, not a lot of attention on thinking about toxic stress among refugee children and how it impacts their early learning. Um, how did IRC and Sesame Street even think to pair up to do this, to make this their goal to help these children? Well, you're exactly right. It's an issue that's been neglected largely by the humanitarian sector, even though we know from decades of research and scientific uh, knowledge that the early years of life are the most sensitive for children in developing the brain architecture that really form the foundation for future learning and future functioning and have long-term impacts on children's health and well-being. Um, so we knew that Sesame Street has such a powerful potential to influence not only the lives of young children, but also families around the world. They have uh, a long history of international productions, as well as the, the shows that we all know and love in the United States. Um, and so it was a natural uh, partnership that emerged even before we had any funding available to us. Um, but then when we saw this opportunity from the MacArthur Foundation, when they were announcing this um, 
first ever competition for a hundred million for any solution to a critical problem of our time. We knew that this was the type of uh, initiative that this would enable us to kind of make these dreams come true and really restore hope and opportunity for children whose lives have been uprooted by crisis and conflict. Uh, Katie, when we think of Sesame Street, obviously access to a television, uh, when we think of refugee populations, do the people that you're trying to help, do they have access uh, uh, to the programming that you're talking about that you're working on creating? They do. We've actually found that very high penetration rates, both for televisions as well as uh, mobile telephones. So there's a lot of opportunities for uh, digital content that can be shared across um, things like WhatsApp or text messages or even Facebook that uh, families are accessing on their phones. It's important to recognize that we're not only um, thinking of the sort of mass media component that's a really important piece of this initiative. Um, We will be creating new types of characters and uh, and programming that really reflect the reality of children's lives within the region, and that can be um, spread through broadcast television and mobile phones. But we also know that for children who've experienced such extreme distress um, and for their caregivers, that there's a there's a a real need for direct services. And so our initiative also includes that kind of face-to-face personal interaction through home visiting services, through uh, preschool-type programming that would be offered to complement the mass media initiative as well. Well, When we look at the the mass media initiative, uh, Sesame Street uh, for many years has created characters uh, for all different uh, types of children so that when they're Mm -hmm. watching something, uh, they see someone like them. I wanted to play a clip. Uh, This is one of the new Muppets that uh, Sesame Street created named Tauntaun. Actually, it was part of a presentation by uh, Sesame Street and IRC to the MacArthur Foundation. Let's hear a clip from Tauntaun. I have a new best friend. Her name is Amal. Mm. She's for Lightington, and she's from Syria. Yes, and we like to sing and dance, and we count like this. That's great. Like this, Monsieur. Wahad, Etnin, Tlati, Arba. Very good. So you hear Tauntaun uh, counting in Arabic. Uh, what are some of the characters that you think will relate to these children you're trying to reach in Syria? Well, this is something that will be developed in the early stage of this initiative, so it's not necessarily been finalized yet. Um, But as you say, Sesame is so wonderful at creating characters that really reflect the the reality of children's lives, Um, and they use local language, and uh, they ensure that the the dress that the characters wear really resonates with the children and the families so that it really becomes... Uh, something that they see as their own, not something that's a U.S. uh, import that they're watching on their screen, but something really um, homegrown. And uh, my colleagues from Sesame could talk much more about this, but they work very closely with with local creative teams uh, and producers to ensure that that content is culturally relevant. Uh, We talked about toxic stress among children. Uh, Their parents and caregivers are going through a lot of stress and trauma themselves. How do you uh, reach them when you mention these home visits as part of this project? 
Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, we know that early childhood development begins in the first critical years of life. Um, and during those years of life, the family and particularly the, the primary caregivers are the most powerful influences on the child. Um, and so ensuring that they are emotionally stable, able to respond to a child's cues, um, able to engage in play and communication activities, um, and to provide stable and comforting routines for a child is something that's critical um, for the family's overall well-being. And so we've looked at uh, a broad array of evidence-based programs on how to kind of restore those types of skills and caregivers and are drawing from proven models that have long-term impacts on child development as well as caregiver well-being. Um, and sometimes just having that, that support of a familiar face that comes into your home on a regular basis that, you know, apart from uh, providing practical strategies and tips, also just sort of is a friend um, and able to kind of help problem solve about some of the, the difficult stresses of life that are associated with living in displacement and having experienced things um, that are really unthinkable to many of us. And how soon before this project is on the ground? I understand um, IRC and Sesame um, has a pilot in, in Jordan, but how soon before you'll be reaching these children, um, caregivers in Syria? So we have, IRC has existing programs um, that it has been running for several years in response to the, the Syrian crisis, as well as programs around the world. Um, and so we will be um, adapting and building and strengthening and expanding those programs um, through the following years and infusing them with Sesame content um, and this mass media initiative, which we're really excited about. Uh, so it, it's ongoing. We have uh, programs that are serving these families and children currently, um, but to expand to the level that we've proposed in this initiative will take um, likely a year to get to the first sort of larger scale um, group uh, of recipients. And then the initiative itself is five years, um, so we'll be able to um, throughout the course of five years, not only through direct services with IRC, that's media, but also working with local governments, with NGO partners, with UN agencies to ensure that this is broadly disseminated and something that can and really And Katie, um, we're actually running out yeah. of time, but I do want to thank yeah. you, a Senior Technical Advisor for Early Childhood Development at the International Rescue Committee, IRC and Sesame Street, uh, just award a $100 million grant to help uh, refugee children and their caregivers. Katie, thank you for giving us a glimpse into the project. We appreciate it. Thanks and, so much. And this is where we live.